Traditionally, if you're trying to do something brave and heroic, it either consists of doing something new and dramatic or carrying on normally in the face of danger. And in this case, we're asking people to do a third thing. We're asking people to stay home in the face of danger. And it's very hard for people to believe that that is the brave and correct choice. We are about to dive into the minds of heroes that battled through adversity and came out the other side transformed into something greater. Entrepreneurs on a mission to change the world. Athletes and performers with incredible ability for higher execution. Individuals making social change because they're unsatisfied with the status quo. Doctors pushing the boundaries of knowledge to push the needle on human potential. People that made the decision to be the hero of their story. This is Heroic Minds. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds podcast. On today's episode, we have Alana Shake. Alana holds a Master's of Public Health and International Health from Boston University and brings 20 years of program design, management, and assessment experience spanning the humanitarian relief and development sectors, including writing for UN Dispatch and TED, as well as providing social media support for NGOs. In the first half of this episode, we break down the hopefully temporary present issue of COVID-19. In the second half of this episode, we move into the interconnected global healthcare system and how the answers to fix things are right in front of us. Why weren't we prepared for COVID-19? How do we prepare for the inevitable return of another virus? Who can we help to limit the spread of disease? What changes can be made to improve our global healthcare and what is standing in our way? Last but not least and most important, what is the heroic mindset we can all adopt when dealing with a pandemic. Before we hop into the episode, as always, we have to give a shout out to our friends over at True Local that amidst this coronavirus right now are still delivering their unbelievable high quality product. That's truelocal.ca, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L.ca. What is True Local? It is a high quality meat delivery service. They deliver individually packaged meats right to your doorstep. You order online, you touch a couple buttons, you choose exactly what you want in your box. It shows up to your doorstep, all frozen, frozen solid. You throw it right into your freezer. You pull it out whenever you want it. That's truelocal.ca. There's zero hidden fees, nothing at all. You see everything you pay for. There's no extra cancellation fees, nothing like that. You decide exactly when you want your box to show up. Every 30 days, every 37 days, every 45 days. That is totally up to you. And you control all of that from the palm of your hand on your mobile device or on your laptop. If you want to give them a try, use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. Before we hop into the episode, I want to remind everyone to check out the link in the description of this episode. It is the TED Talk that Alana gave that has gone viral all about pandemics and issues in global healthcare that exist. So I encourage you to check that out. It's educational. It's powerful. Just like this episode is going to be already. Here we go. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. And like I said, that YouTube video, I wish I could send it to everyone. And that's exactly why I'm doing this to get that message out there even and even more in depth to as many people as I can, because it's what people need to hear at this time, I believe. It's, it's that optimism, but it's also the realism that people need to pull up their socks. I've really been grateful that people have responded to it the way they have. Um, I didn't particularly intend it to be optimistic, so it's genuinely interesting to me that people find that in it. Have you had other people say that it's... There's a bit of optimism in it or is that just me? (laughs) 
No, people keep calling it like calming and reassuring. And like, I, I didn't intend that at all, honestly. I, one thing I've learned in, in different stories of when we're, we're unsure of things is if there's even a plan that gives us hope, even if we don't understand what's going on. And, and that to me is from my background with concussion and head injury is so many times we don't know what's going on, but we find a sense of optimism. If someone just gives us a plan, someone tell me what to do and what we could do to work through this. And maybe that's where it's coming from, but I definitely appreciated it and sent it to everyone I know. So I'm sure lots of people are reaching out to you at, at this moment and looking for answers, but I guess in your own personal, mental, physical well-being, how are you doing through all of this? So, you know, it's, someone said to me the other day that like, you must be really pleased to see global health finally getting the attention it deserves. And, you know, I'd be a lot happier actually, if it continued being an obscure, especially nobody cared about, like, this is not the way I wanted people to suddenly develop an interest in my work. So it's been a little strange. <laughs> what, what would have been the ideal then? Huh? Like, you know, we eradicate a major disease and everyone gets excited about it. You know, we finally get rid of measles or polio or something. That would have been a great way for people to know about my work. Yeah, and I, I want to dive into that as well. I mean, here, and I, I think a lot of us, I'm here in Waterloo, not far from Toronto, Canada, um, where when we, when we hear about diseases, it's, we, don't, we think we're, we're immune. Like, oh, that's, that's so far away. That's not going to touch us. We don't, we, don't, we don't put time into educating ourselves on it because we have this for whatever reason, story in our mind that, hey, it's, we're good. Don't worry about it. It's not our problem. And I think this is a, that hit a reality that, that people needed. And again, I know you didn't want it that way, but I think that's where a lot of us are. And, and now we're like searching for answers. What, what do we turn to? What, what do we do? I apologize. That's how your work has come to the forefront, but it's, I think it's helping a lot of people. All right, so that, that's really interesting to hear. I, I figured we would get through the basics and then get to the more, let's look beyond COVID-19. Let's, let's spread this into education and how we can de- decide to maybe just tailor our lives differently, whether that's on a personal level, social level, political level, how we view things. Uh, but I thought we'd start with the coronavirus first. So how long have we known about the coronavirus? I know there's not just COVID-19. We've had awareness and known about coronaviruses for a while. How long have they gone back? How long do we know they've existed? They've probably always existed. Like they're probably not newly evolved. I mean, one of the coronaviruses, I'm not sure which one off the top of my head is basically the common cold. So this isn't a new set of viruses. And we've probably even seen COVID-19 at some point in history, but before we had the ability to actually identify viruses the way we do now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but from some some of your work and other work, I've seen that the corona is is basically the uh, indicator on how it it spreads and how it latches. It's the shape of the the cell or the gene. Is that how it works? Yeah. So a coronavirus is a specific kind of virus, and on the surface of the virus, they have these spikes. And so the, the, the spikes on the surface are sort of the corona because someone thought they looked like a crown. And so um, they also have RNA instead of DNA. So they're an RNA virus. That's the other thing that makes them a little different and that makes them a group that belongs together. That has to do with the specific genetic material of the virus. It's RNA as opposed to DNA. I decided to do some of my own homework on the difference between RNA and DNA just out of curiosity and staying in my own lane, I've decided to quote some articles from Thomas Jefferson University, specifically their Computational Medicine Center. 
In brief, DNA is two strands of genetic code while RNA is a single strand. DNA is more stable and RNA is more reactive. DNA provides the code for the cell's activities while RNA converts that code into proteins to carry out cellular functions. If an egg is a cell, the cell DNA would be found in the yolk of the egg. RNA would be found in the egg white of the egg. Not sure if you were as interested in that as I was, but I thought I would share anyways. And now one thing in my life that I know was one of the bigger viruses that that I'd heard of, um, not necessarily been touched by, but is SARS. How does that compare to the COVID-19 that we're dealing with right now? So SARS is a coronavirus, first of all. So it's in the same family as COVID-19. And the other thing about coronaviruses is they're respiratory. They go for your lungs. So SARS, of course, severe acute respiratory syndrome went for the lungs. And we got lucky in a way with SARS because it was um, identified very quickly. And the Asian countries that really saw the most severe outbreaks acted very quickly and learned from what was going on. So SARS Mm -hmm. got stopped before it became a pandemic. Okay. Okay. And now roughly, do you know how wide the span of of symptoms is per person? I mean, it seems like some people are, are coming out on social media even and saying, they, they've tested positive, yet they don't have any symptoms. Other people, it's the complete opposite. Um, do we know anything about that, the span of symptoms in these types of coronaviruses? You know, the coronaviruses are different from each other, but we know in COVID-19 that there's a very wide range of symptoms. Like there are people who are actually will pes- test positive for COVID-19 that never show symptoms. So it can be entirely asymptomatic, and that person can spread it to someone who gets horribly sick from it. So it ranges from basically you have no symptoms to fatal viral pneumonia. And if they haven't had symptoms in, let's say, a month, does that mean their body has the immune to keep it dormant forever? Or, does, or could it still come out in someone even after this 14 week, or sorry, 14 day, whatever, two months, whatever it becomes incubation period, uh, it, would it still have the potential to come out and show symptoms after that? It does not look like it's going to live in your body forever now. It looks like your your immune system will eventually clear it. In your in your humble opinion, before we we get to the uh, again beyond this COVID nineteen present day issue, what or sorry, who was most prepared for this issue? Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the mainly the nations that had faced SARS before, and they did something really exceptional, which is they took a big shock to their health system, SARS. And they used it to make that health system stronger. In a lot of situations, when countries take a real shock to their health system, they get weaker. But in this case, they actually learned from it, applied the experience, were able to to grow stronger as a result. And so when they saw the signs of COVID-19, they had the surveillance systems in place to very quickly realize that there was a new virus and it was spreading fast. And they could act on that data to start putting restrictions in place in terms of movement restrictions on people to roll out testing as fast as possible so they could track the movement and to do some sort of, we call it like old school epidemiological footwork where you actually do contract tracing, where if somebody's diagnosed with an infectious disease, you then go and find everybody that they saw and test them right away to see if they have Wow. Would countries like this have a surveillance or a, a plan together looking through different types of transmission other than just human to human? Would they be looking on farms with animals? Because I know that's a big thing that's come up as of late is that all oh, this has all started through, through animals. 
when we talk about surveillance systems in this case, we mean epidemiological surveillance. And that's basically a system whereby when doctors run into a strange disease they don't recognize or a set of previously identified dangerous reportable infections, they immediately report it to the public health system in their country. And then the public health system is tracking how many cases we see. And they start noticing quickly if there's an outbreak because they see how many cases come up. Often there's also an agricultural surveillance system that does something similar with veterinarians and farms around animal diseases and tracks animal diseases. Uh, in particular, avian influenza is pretty closely tracked because when uh, a poultry farm is infected with avian influenza, they genuinely have to call all the birds. So they watch very carefully for avian influenza. Now, when it comes to global supply chains, it seems like this can be a good thing and a bad thing, this interconnected connectedness we have in this world. And, and here's where we kind of step beyond COVID-19 into healthcare globally in this entire conversation, the interconnectedness of the world. Um, how is that a, a positive thing, but also how is that a negative thing? So I don't really think it is a particularly negative thing. Um, I don't think that a globalized supply chain particularly causes or drives diseases or leads to additional infections. The, and why would that be? I mean, because broadly speaking, goods are not what spread infection people are. And there's far more people traveling around the world as tourists or to see their families or for other kinds of work than there are crewing the freighters that haul our goods around the world. Like, I think container ships are absolutely the least of our problems if we're talking about spreading infection. The exception being the zebra mussels that have spread through the Great Lakes. Those 100% came from the container ships. <laughs> but leaving that aside, the issue with supply chains isn't about globalization of supply chains. The issue with supply chains is just-in-time ordering. It's the idea that you don't have a deep stockpile because you're all counting on the fact that when you need it, you'll order it and it will come in time. So when you need to suddenly scale up on masks or something, you can't go to the warehouse and get your supply of masks because you don't have a supply. So if you had a six-month supply of masks and you had to use them all in three weeks, you could do that. But when you don't have that supply because you just order every few weeks, there's no reserve to go to. That's the weakness in the supply chain when you face an emergency like this. And it doesn't cause the emergency. It just ma makes us unprepared to respond to it. Right. It's almost like the tool is there, but we hadn't been using it properly to be prepared for something like this. Oh, yes. Yes. So many specialists are saying that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there likely will be more issues like this in the future. And what would your opinion be on why we're not doing more right now to, to then put things in place? So I get asked this a lot, like really a lot, especially um, in the U.S. as it comes out, like how very unprepared the U.S. was for pandemic. And I think what it is, is that people have a hard time really thinking about abstract threats. And the idea of a strange disease coming to your country and killing people is very abstract. And it's hard for people to want to invest money in preparing for these sorts of abstract threats, especially when they're couched in health and medical language that doesn't necessarily have a lot of meaning or resonance for them. And they're not sure what the odds are that this is going to happen. And when there's no appetite among citizens for this, then national leadership doesn't tend to act. And I mean, realistically, you're a politician. Probably the pandemic isn't going to happen while you're in office. So there isn't a lot of intrinsic motivation for politicians to address this either. So I think it's hard for people to think about so they don't. And because they're not thinking about it, they don't ask the government to fund it. 
and the governments are largely run by politicians who come in and out of office and aren't going to gain a lot politically by investing money in this abstract concept that nobody wants to think about. Why has this also put us like, why are we even more so unprepared for this is there, it seems like there wasn't even really a neutral point where, oh, well, we were kind of prepared. What made us really unprepared for something like this? And maybe we could even target Canada specifically or the Toronto area specifically where we are. Okay. I live in Sri Lanka. I cannot, I cannot (laughs) figure out what happened to Toronto. I'm sorry. Usually I can tell you, usually it's some sort of like national and municipal level coordination problem. Like usually the communication isn't going through fast enough. The decision makers aren't making the decisions as quickly as they need to. Um, Pretty much everybody's been hit by a shortage of tests for COVID-19. I suspect, in fact, I think I heard from a friend in Toronto that you also have run into the shortage of tests and there's a lot of debate over who should get tested and why. On social media, probably not the right place to look, but a lot of the conversation goes to, oh, if we improve life in third world countries and that's where the real problem is, is that even true? And is, is, if we deal with the issues of that exist in third world countries, will that make things better um, for the rest of the globe? Is that where we turn to? So I'm not a big fan of the term third world. We sort of moved away from using that in global health because the people who live in those countries don't like being called that. And they'd rather we just admit that they are what they are, which is poor. So broadly speaking, if we improve health systems and surveillance systems in poor countries, that data gets fed into the same international data set that everyone else's does. And that means that if something breaks out in a poor country, um, say Papua New Guinea, then we would see the outbreak in Papua New Guinea. We'd know there's a new virus. We'd see how fast it was investing pe- infecting people. And then governments all over the world could make decisions of what they need to do to prepare their own national health systems. Should they be training physicians? Should they be increasing their orders of respirators? Should they be preparing stockpiles? So there's a lot of value to investing in health systems all over the world because it's the right thing to do because all people deserve healthcare and should have access to healthcare and because it's an early warning system for everyone else. It works in the other direction too. If we had an outbreak of a new disease in the US or Canada, you'd better believe that Singapore would be like watching our data and learning from it so they could be ready. Totally, totally. I, to me, it's it's such common sense and it's almost, it's... I've seen a lot of videos online where it's a line of matches being lit. And if you take out the one match before it spreads it to the next match, the rest of the matches don't light on fire. And to me, this, that whole concept is, is if we don't invest in the poorer countries in this world to decrease risk for everyone, especially the people in those poor countries that do deserve the healthcare, then it's going to come full circle and we are going to be negatively affected as well. So why not just deal with it up front is, is one of the biggest messages I took from, from your work and what you've shared is we're all in this together and it will actually be better for absolutely everyone, ourselves included, if we invest earlier on. Okay, So, so that's the message I wanted everyone to take away. So I'm excited to hear that. Because <laughs> like oh, usually okay, people well. just remember sanitize your phone. And that, that was not the message I wanted them to leave with. Yeah, they, well, it wasn't. It was that, oh my gosh, we are so much more interconnected than I thought. Everyone deserves, like everyone deserves that support that you were able to give the audience, that guidance you were able to give the audience, and then also be able to act on it. And as we know, people in those poorer countries probably aren't as easy, easily able to act on that, on the information that you delivered it. And we do, and why not then invest in it? Because in the yeah, long run- Yeah, I mean, run, how can you benefit. wash your hands if you don't have running water, for example? Exactly. Exactly. That's what I thought of right away. Like, wow, we can stay inside here now. 
and we have running water and we have all this sanitizer and we have, we still have access to this clean food, et cetera. So it just, I don't know, this whole thing has been to me is, is, a you know, it's people are talking about bringing themselves together, et cetera. To me, it's how lucky we are. Like, yeah, I'm in a small or condo right now, not in a big house, but geez, I, I have, I have too much. I'm here looking around at all the stuff I have and it's too much. And that's, that was the biggest, uh, you know, after your talk, but then also this experience, that's what it's, it's told me. So um, just another awesome message from, from the, what you're sharing. What are the biggest health problems right now beyond COVID-19 in this world? And this was, this whole conversation is a huge eye-opener for myself. And I know other people that are in my shoots that we're in our own little world thinking that there's no disease and no viruses. So um, I'll leave that over to you and you can take that wherever you want. But yeah, what are the biggest health problems besides COVID-19? So people are still dying from a lot of really infuriating, stupid stuff. Like children are still dying from diarrhea and they're still dying from respiratory infections, like things that nobody should die from. I mean, mothers are still dying in childbirth because they don't have a attendant to help them give birth. Like there's some very basic stuff that's still happening all over the world. And then the other thing that I tend to bring up that nobody really thinks about enough, in my opinion, is tuberculosis, is there's an awful lot of people getting infected with tuberculosis still. And, you know, you think of like TB sanatoriums from like 1906, you don't realize that it's a disease that's still alive and well all over the world. So it's, it makes you, again, it makes you think we have here in the, I would say in North America, so much of, and so much extra. And so, and that's still an issue in this world, but we're able to turn a blind eye to it because it's not right beside us, which I think that's why this is so powerful. And now in, in poorer countries, does climate play into this or is climate an issue around the globe? This, this whole idea of disease spreading and viruses spreading. So climate's kind of playing spoiler and making everything else worse. Climate is expanding the zone that the tropical diseases can live in. So we're going to see the tropical diseases in more places. Climate is driving climate refugees, which are people who frequently end up in situations where they don't have access to good health care or good nutrition and that they end up sick and hungry or stunted or half starved. And climate is allowing certain kinds of bacteria to thrive in ways they didn't thrive before. It's changing animal patterns and habitats. It's changing uh, crops and the nutritional value that we find in our crops. Like climate is just sort of exacerbating all of it. So it's not necessarily the cause. It's just pushing all these issues further, further beyond. It's sort of hard to tell sometimes what's the cause and what's the effect. Like it can be, you know, certainly in these situations like where um, uh, I was just hearing about the polar ice caps where when the polar ice caps start to melt, they actually start to melt faster, like it's a cycle. So they cause the climate and the climate causes them. It seems, <laughs> I don't know if you get this being immersed in it. It seems like it's so simple, it's complex, yet so simple. And my mind keeps going back and forth. When you approach this whole idea, is it, a, is it that complex to you or is it really quite simple in a sense of, of working towards a better global um, efforts towards limiting the effects of these viruses and diseases. So uh, I know a guy named Eric Berlau, who honestly has no idea. I keep quoting him on podcasts. He's a data scientist <laughs> and he was giving a presentation once and Eric said, complicated problems have many points of entry. And so in, in a weird sort of way, that's the advantage to a deeply complicated problem. A deeply complicated problem has lots of places you can start pushing it towards solutions. 
So this is a profoundly complicated problem, but because it's so complex, that means there's a lot of places you can start trying to make it better. And one of the places you can start trying to make it better is by improving the healthcare for everybody. And another place you can try to make it better is by improving diagnostics, like seeing if we can come up with new, more affordable diagnostic tests so it's easier to test for this stuff. Another way you could make it better is by getting people to stop pushing into the last wild places and leave the wild animals alone so they don't share their diseases with us. Or another way you could make it better is slow climate change so that it isn't exacerbating everything. Like there's a lot of points where we could enter and start improving things. That's hopeful. And now where would you say is the most important is, like you said, is having great healthcare for everyone? Is that the point you would start with? So, you know, I'm a, I'm trained in public health, so I'm always going to sort of start with the healthcare. And to me, it's always going to seem like the thing that's most achievable. Like I tend to think pragmatically, like what is the best option versus what is the option we can get moving on? And I don't know what the best option is, but I know we know how to improve health systems. I know we know how to get people healthcare. And I know that even if it didn't have any knock-on effects, it's a moral imperative that we give people access to healthcare. Children shouldn't die because they can't go to a doctor. Now, some of the improvements you talked about in your work, in your book that I, that I read through, one thing that stood out to me that was so, again, thinking complex but simple, was an improvement that people have made beyond mobile health and catalytic investment was task shifting. That was really interesting to me. And now, is that implemented in areas today? Okay, so the book was published eight years ago. And I have okay. not seen nearly as much movement on task shifting as I would have expected. Like, it seems to be much wow. more we've shifted in the direction of giving everybody more access to physicians and trying to produce more physicians. And if everybody was listening to me, that is not what we'd be doing. But that is, in fact, what we're doing. <laughs> oh, okay. Because, I, I, I mean, if, to me, it makes... I don't know. It's why not spread the wealth of... And for, peop, for listeners, task shifting, and uh, Alana, correct me if I'm wrong, is is basically having one lead doctor and having other people that are just a little less qualified working under that doctor, but now creating more care for more people. Is that correct? That's correct. There's a lot of healthcare that doctors do that doesn't need to be done by a doctor. And actually that you have seen in Canada, that the Canadian health system has actually been pretty good at task shifting. Like if you go into your healthcare and you need stitches or something, it's not going to be a physician stitching you up, right? It's going to be a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. Or, you know, a whole series of things that are easy to diagnose and easy to deal with that don't need a doctor, they just need a medical professional. And there's an enormous category of work that has historically fallen to physicians that other people can actually do, which theoretically ought to free up the physicians to do the really interesting stuff. Like you'd think they would like this idea, but they don't. Is it that they don't like giving up control or authority? Is that part of the play or is it an insurance issue? I mean, insurance companies are totally in favor of having the lower paid people do the work. So it's not an insurance issue. I think that it's actually, it's not so much about power and authority is that like most people who go to medical school do it because they have a real passion for patient care and a real belief that they personally can make a difference. And so I guess it's a little like giving up authority, but it's not because they're power hungry. It's because they're afraid that care will be worse if they're not involved. Have, have since, I guess, since writing that book, have you seen any other innovations take place similar to something like that, whether it's a way a program's run, how 
people are used in, in certain situations or investments in certain things that have been a positive for global healthcare? I've seen some interesting motion in a lot of countries around giving midwives more responsibility so that they can do things like prescribe birth control and um, provide prenatal care. So um, that's been interesting, seeing like the increase of responsibilities of going, to, going to midwives. I think that's really valuable. And then I think there's been a shift towards thinking in a more comprehensive way about health um, beyond sort of the patient in front of you and whatever thing they're complaining about at the moment to thinking about their whole life and how does their whole life contribute to their health and how can we improve that in other ways besides identifying the right pill for them to take. Again, complex issue to me, that's a simple conversation, but such a powerful conversation. It's really cool to, to, to hear stuff like that. Do you think there'll be a time where it'll be possible to create laws when something like this occurs? Like I'm, I'm hearing murmurs now through social media and po- political um, conversations that laws now and and being able to find people for being out or for doing something that spreads the virus. I mean, that is such a complicated governance issue. And I think that ends up being up to not just the national governments, but even like the municipalities and sort of the laws at that level. Um, I mean, it's really hard. Like there's a, a conflict there between the individual's freedom and protecting their community and their nation as a whole. And that's a terrifically challenging problem. And, you know, the other thing that, like, I mentioned Singapore, I mentioned Hong Kong, I mentioned Taiwan, none of those places are known for having a lot of respect for individual freedom. Like, Singapore in particular is famous for the amount of control that the government exerts over its population. And, you know, in this case, it came to the advantage of the population because it protected them from something awful, but you know, one could argue that it doesn't always come out in favor of the population. So whether we're going to see laws around that, that is just such a tricky and complicated issue. I don't even, I don't even know what I would want to see happen, let alone what I think is actually going to happen. One thing that's interesting and has come up before on the podcast is the conversation about antibiotics. We're actually not that far away from antibiotics losing their power of, of what they're able to do. How far, are, how far away are we from that in, now that the... Uh, where we're at in time today, but then also what is the next step? Do we move on from antibiotics to CRISPR? Is there, is there, what is the next move? So we've been doing a few things that, you know, one of which is getting more and more restrictive about how antibiotics are used to try to eke out their effectiveness a little longer. And we are already seeing them losing their power. Like it's not binary. It's not like one day they work and the next day they don't work anymore. It's that we see more and more infections emerge that are resistant to antibiotics. And that's what we're seeing. That's the pattern we've seen over the last decade is that more and more bacterial infections don't respond to antibiotics. And, um, you know, you start looking for other methods of treatment that don't involve antibiotics. You start looking for new antibiotics that they can't resist yet. You look for new combinations of antibiotics. They're sort of like, There's no one thing you do. You do a whole set of things to try to figure out how do we keep being able to kill bacteria in this situation. Wow. And now these, is it that the antibiotics, they're weakening, I guess you could say, but is it that these viruses are just becoming stronger or more immune to, they're they're evolving as well? Is that the, the main issue? Okay, so antibiotics work against bacteria. They don't work against viruses. You use an antiviral against a virus. An antibiotic is for bacteria. And yes, actually, you nailed it when you said they're evolving. So what happens is if you're sick, you have a bacterial infection, um, syphilis, tuberculosis, uh, staph A, acne, 
uh, you have a bacterial infection, you take the antibiotic. The antibiotic kills like 95% of the bacteria, but there's 5% that are not killed. And they continue to live on in your body. And, you know, maybe they don't really bother you because you killed enough of the bacteria you're doing. Okay, you're fine. But those 5% are not killable by, anti- by the antibiotic that you took. They're the survivors. And the problem is, this is where it gets tricky, they can share that resistance with other bacteria. So if you make poor protection choices and you get syphilis, you take your antibiotics, you uh. cure your syphilis, but there's a little bit of resistant syphilis. Next time you get syphilis, those bacteria can share their resistance with all the other bacteria. And boom, now you have antibiotic resistance syphilis. And you make another poor choice around protection and somebody else gets syphilis from you and they get the antibiotic resistant syphilis immediately as their first infection. And this would be the NDM1 that was in your book. I assume that's kind of the, one, of the, one of the genes that are passed that easily. What is it that we can do now because we weren't prepared for it to, as individuals, as groups, um, to really push in the right direction of limiting the spread of, of the virus of COVID-19. So first of all, as you, as you mentioned specifically, like do your job with regard, regard to social distancing, like don't, you know, stay home. It's, it's a very confusing thing, actually. Like, I think this is really hard for people to process is that like, traditionally, if you're trying to do something brave and heroic, it either consists of doing something new and dramatic or carrying on normally in the face of danger. And in this case, we're asking people to do a third thing. We're asking people to stay home in the face of danger. And it's very hard for people to believe that that is the brave and correct choice. Like, it's just not what we've been taught to believe. Like, staying home because something bad is happening is not what anyone thinks as a heroic action. But in this case, it actually is. You can think of it as a form of, like, austerity, right? Like, you know, during World War II, they were rationing bread, and so people didn't get enough bread. Like, now we're rationing social contact. Right. That's such a good way to put it. And then the other thing I think is for people to start thinking about what comes next and think about how they're going to make sure that health systems in their community and their country are made stronger by this really horrific shock instead of weakened. And what is going to be involved in making sure that it's strengthened. When, when this, when this does pass, what do you think is that, that first step towards fixing this issue? I mean, the first step towards preparing for the next new virus or new uh, pathogen. I mean, there's so many things that could be your first step. Um, It could be investing in the World Health Organization so that it can act faster and issue recommendations faster. It could be increasing the amount of foreign aid so that Canada can start helping other countries more build their health systems, be that line of early warning. It could be on the domestic level, like every healthcare facility thinks about what are we going to need if there's an outbreak event, what should we have on hand in our warehouse for emergencies and shift away from ordering when they need it to holding some things on hand. I don't know if you saw Facebook just released something like 700,000 masks that donated to hospitals that Facebook had been holding for its employees enough for its whole workforce to go to work for two weeks if it needed it. And, you know, why can't everyone be as prepared as Facebook? But I guess that leads into another question is, do you think there'll be changes in the way people live after we move forward from this and we do control the spread and, and hopefully limit as many lives as possible that are negatively affected or lost? I suspect people will be much more deliberate about big, crowded social gatherings. I think that no one's ever going to go to a concert that they're sort of indifferent to again. 
if you're going to go to a concert, it's going to be because you love that artist. Um, I think a lot of sort of mm. big conventions and things that sort of like industry conventions that everybody goes to because they feel obligated to are going to stop existing and be shifted over to some sort of like virtual event. So I think there's certain kinds of big social gatherings that we're just never going to feel the same way about. I also think that people are going to realize how much their social contact means to them and value the people in their lives more. At least maybe that's what I'm hoping for is that people will recognize how much community means to them, how much their friends and family and loved ones mean to them and be deliberate about cultivating and caring for those people. Now, do you think um, this can, like the one thing I have in my mind, and maybe this is because I'm a doubting Thomas, I'm not sure. If do we th- could it be possible that we think red of the bushes and it spreads again? That's a question that I've had with a couple of people in my life. Is is we think we've got control over it, but we don't quite. And then it's and then there's that spike in quotations that we that we hear in the spread. Is that possible? That's definitely possible, and you can kind of see it happening. Um, I know I keep talking about Singapore, but I've been looking at their numbers a lot. The first influx of cases in Singapore came from travelers from Wuhan. The second wave of cases in Singapore was the community spread, where it spread among people who are already resident in Singapore. Their third wave was when they got travelers from Europe. And the question is, will there then be a fourth wave, which is the community spread following the European travelers? So yeah, it's entirely possible that it will look like COVID-19 is under control and that it will flare up again. Wow. And it's up to people having conversations like this and doing their due diligence to ensure that that doesn't happen is what I assume the the answer is to that to that issue. That's part of it. And then I would really love to see everybody testing far, far more for COVID-19. I'd love to see so many tests so that we have really good data to work from. And so that if it is flaring up, we know instantly and there's no time lag. Right. In in your humble opinion and prediction, do you have any idea of this, but the potential of this occurring again in the future once we do, of course, have control over the situation? Do you see this as a two-year, five-year, 20-year thing where this should happen again. Like, do I see COVID-19 coming back or do I think there's going to be another outbreak of some kind? Another outbreak of some kind. I'm sure there's going to be another outbreak of some kind. I don't know if it's going to go pandemic again, but are we going to see some sort of novel virus? Are we going to see a new kind of bacterial pathogen? Yes. Like the choices we're making about how we live on earth are basically guaranteeing it. I mean, we're still waiting or fearing the form of avian influenza that actually spreads really effectively from person to person. That hasn't happened yet, but viruses mutate. There's no reason it can't. So you're saying in a sense, this virus isn't spreading as fast as other viruses we know could potentially spread? No, this one's spreading fast, but we could see other viruses that look a lot like this one. Would it be would it be doing a disservice to f- try and focus on stopping that from ever happening? Or should the focus be on being prepared for it to happen if it does? I feel like you can try for both. I feel like, you know, global attention and governments are large enough to aim for both goals. To keep it as an epidemic instead. Or ideally to keep it as an outbreak. It sort of goes outbreak, epidemic, pandemic. And ideally to keep it as an outbreak. I wondered what other areas are you putting your time and research into that you want to see change uh, beyond just the specific of the COVID-19? I mean, my core passion really is about getting people access to healthcare about making sure that everybody is able to go to see a healthcare professional when they're sick. It's about healthcare as a human right. And now before we conclude, I thought I, I 
I see your your passion in making healthcare accessible to to everyone, which is obviously should be a passion of everyone's. Um, when we talk about the poor countries and the reason things spread so quickly, could you could you dive into some of those issues and why we should we should invest and support these these poorer countries when it comes to pregnancy and 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 population? The list goes on of, of why they're they do need support in in making healthcare accessible to everyone? So a lot of the things that are required to identify a disease outbreak and report it upwards are just what's required to have a functioning health system. Like you need to have a health facility that people can get to. You need to have a health facility people can afford and are comfortable entering. You need to have a healthcare provider there, a doctor, a nurse, a medical assistant, whatever, who's capable of diagnosing their problem and treating it. And then reporting about it upwards. And like those are sort of core functions. And once those are in place, they can identify a new disease, but they can also, you know, make sure that a pregnant woman has a safe delivery or that a child with diarrhea gets the correct treatment instead of dying. So the way in which healthcare systems are sort of in our self interest, the way that helping poor countries is in the self interest of the wealthier countries is about outbreaks and pathogens. But once you put those pieces in place, they also fulfill our moral imperative to provide healthcare to everybody. And I think that it's an inherent good to have a child live who would have died. I think saving babies is inherently good and we should all be able to get behind the idea that like six-month-old babies should get to live to be six-year-old children should get to live to be 60-year-old women, you know? Totally. It was... An interesting eye-opener in, in your book as well about, um, on, that, on that note, when it, talks to, when it talks about the survival, uh, and you talk about the survival like you just did in population, um, that the, a family would, would actually have more kids knowing that some of them may not make it. I mean, you don't have to look at developing countries. You can look at Canada 100 years ago. People look at family size in Canada around the turn of the century. Yeah. Same thing. Same thing. Same factors. Yeah. I wanted to make sure we ended there. And, and last but not least, I would say if you had a line, a slogan, anything that you could give people today right now that may be anxious, nervous, uncertain about the situation they're in. Two pieces, sort of one, one big one, one smaller one. The big one is that we do actually know what to do to make pandemics less serious or less likely in the future. Like we know what those investments are. They aren't exciting. They aren't fun to talk about. They're not a new whiz bang tech thing, but they exist and we know how to do them. Like building health systems is something that there's a lot of deep expertise on and that we could do. And then the second piece is just sort of on a very individual level. I know a lot of people get very frightened around being exposed to COVID-19. And one thing that I like to tell people is that it's easy to think of it as like exposed, exposed, like it's a binary on or off. But if you actually think about it, what it actually is, is like in any day, there's a series of exposures. And what you want to do is reduce the number of exposures that you face in any given day. So like, maybe you have to go grocery shopping because you need food. So like, do your grocery shopping quickly, get home fast, wash your hands, wipe down your groceries. And, you know, limit the number of exposures because there's a tendency to think, 
like, oh, well, I'm exposed. I might as well just go to the bar. But that's not what it is. You can think of it as sort of a series of events and you want as few of them as, to occur as possible. So that's my two pieces. One of which is that like, you know, we could actually make outbreaks less serious if we did some real investment in the health systems in poor countries. And secondly, you can make individual choices to help you avoid this outbreak. Amazing. I'm sure you get requests from a lot of doctors, a lot of specialists, a lot of people in the field. And and for you to take the time to explain these things to someone like myself that is well outside that world makes me appreciate you and your message even more. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. It, it really means a lot. All right, great. Thank you for having me on. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. As you heard, the heroic move and mindset at this moment is to stay inside, abide by the rules and regulations that have put in place to keep yourself at a safe distance from others, limit your time away from home, and keep those hands clean. And at the same time, maybe share this message, share this episode with someone that may be worried, scared, uncertain at this time, and fill them with education and a plan on what they can do at this peculiar time. Stay safe, be well. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.